A reading from 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing 
but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this day, for this time to be together to worship you. We thank you for your word and for your spirit, and we pray that you would do your work among us as we sit with your scriptures. And even as we pray this prayer, we acknowledge uh, that this story of David and Bathsheba is a profoundly painful one to read. It's one that awakens for many of us places of our deepest pain and most delicate wounds. It's, uh, it, it's a story that awakens uh, memories of the ways that we've hurt one another and been hurt by one another. It's a story that calls to mind uh, things that we read about in the news or hear about uh, power being misused and the damage that is done through systems and structures that allow that to persist. And so we recognize that we come into this space needing your help to know what it means for us to listen to your word in this story, to lift our eyes to behold the glory of your son Jesus through the prism of this text, and to be changed by your spirit. So we commit this time to you. We ask that you would be with us and bless us now through Christ our Lord. Amen. Walter Brueggemann begins his commentary on this text with these words. He says, we pause because this text like none other that we've considered, has the power and the subtlety to address us. If we face this text at all, we are soon invited behind all the critical scholarly questions to face the harder questions of human desire and human power, desire with all its delight, power with all its potential for death, the writer has cut very, very deep into the strange web of foolishness, fear, and fidelity that compromises the human map. This narrative is more than we want to know about David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. I think it's a beautiful way to open a comment on this delicate, difficult painful text because it is profoundly powerful but here's the challenge it is so much easier for you and for I not to face this text and not to allow it to lead us into a place of facing ourselves and facing God and that's not just because our self-defense mechanisms are always up which they are right we always have these self-defense mechanisms that that help us uh, avoid seeing ourselves as we truly are. Uh, that's part of what makes this text hard to read, but that's not all that makes this text hard to read. There are things in here, stumbling blocks, that just make this text painful to read, right? Makes us want to stop reading. This is a hashtag me too story right in the middle of the Bible about one of the most important figures in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's a horrible story, and it's difficult to read, and I'm sure it's painful in all kinds of different ways for many of us as we bring our own experiences of sin and suffering into the room this morning. But no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your particular story is, there is undoubtedly something in this story that is troubling to you, that's difficult, that's, or that's perhaps even hauntingly familiar. And not only about what we see about David, right? There's plenty of awful stuff that we see about David, but we encounter troubling things about God in this text as well. It's a hard text. And this whole 
culture that we live in where our, our impulse to unfollow or unfriend or block just sort of kicks in. And as we're reading through, I don't know about you, but there are these moments where you almost just begin to feel like, okay, I'm done, David. I'm done. Unfriend. You know, I, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not following anymore. Or even you, maybe you felt that when it came to God himself acting in this text where it's like, wait, what? I can't go there. This is just too dark too difficult. The whole episode just sounds too much like all these stories that are dominating our news cycles today. Stories of powerful men exploiting women, usually, or children even, for their own self-indulgence, right? And then hiding behind these institutions and structures that protect the powerful instead of the vulnerable. These are stories that stir us to outrage and justifiably so. And here we come across one right here in the Bible. The story of David and Bathsheba is one of those stories. But before we kick it to the curb in our outrage, I hope that we can sit with it long enough, just long enough, to see that it's not only a story about power and corruption and abuse of power, but it is also a story about outrage itself. And perhaps some of the wisdom that this text has to offer us today has to do with recognizing the danger not only of power and the corruption of power and the abuse of power, but the danger of the ways that you and I relate to outrage itself. I know we live in a culture that eggs us on and demands from us particular kinds of expressions of, against moral evil that we perceive, right? It, we live in a culture that eggs us on towards swift, loud, unflinching expressions of outrage where we don't mince words and we get it done and 140 characters or less, or at least 280 characters nowadays. Outrage is so normalized for us. It's become sort of a moral currency, and it becomes a way, expressions of outrage become a primary way for us of demonstrating what? How woke we are, right? And how, that, that is the degree to which we have become awakened and aware, sensitive to the dynamics of power and privilege at work in our social structures and institutions that create inequalities and that perpetuate injustice and that just do harm in our world. The story about David and Bathsheba, it both affirms us and challenges us in our outrage. And I think it pushes us even to a deeper sense of what it means to be woke, if you will. Not just awakened to the systemic injustice and evil out there. The invisible realities of privilege and power that are absolutely at work that we should see, recognize, and dismantle. But rather to recognize also that the problem isn't just out there, but in here. It's to recognize that our moral outrage at the problems out there, as justified as it may be in any situation, is also dangerous because it becomes, often, a primary way that we convince ourselves that we are fundamentally different from those who are the targets of our rage. We use it as a way of convincing ourselves and one another that we're one of the good ones. We're not like them. And that's where outrage can become dangerous because it becomes one of the most powerful tools of self-deception in our lives. And one of the things that the story of David and Bathsheba, I think, can help us rediscover about ourselves this morning, if we engage it and if we allow it to help us face ourselves, is that our capacity for self-deception is enormous. 
It's greater than we know. And surprisingly, um, it's in this moment of recognizing that this human problem isn't just out there, but it's in here too, it's that moment of recognition where we find ourselves actually at the threshold of freedom and hope. That's what this story will help us uncover, that it's, it's in the moment of actually acknowledging the truth about ourselves that's hard to face, that the doorway to freedom is opened. The place of our sin is the place of our salvation. And this is the part of the great mystery of the gospel of Christ we begin to glimpse through this episode of the story of David. So I invite you, if you will, to join me in joining David as we just walk with him through this painful story. Look at verses 1 and 2. The occasion. In verses 1 and 2, we see that this episode begins in the springtime when kings go out to do battle, right? And then the next thing we see is King David doing what? Not going out to do battle, right? Instead, he sends Joab. Israel's military is still in conflict with the Ammonites. It's a, there's a war out there still going on. There's still work to do on that front. But David, at this point, doesn't feel the need to be involved anymore, so he stays home. We see him pulling back from the kind of kingship that made David such a good king in the first place thus far in the story. And what we see right at the beginning of this story, David never should have been lounging around on his roof in the first place. He's in the wrong place. David, whose rise to fame and power began with his willingness to step in and courageously lead the people in Israel into this battle with Goliath and defeating the Philistines when King Saul was too afraid to do it, that David now emerges as this leisurely, self-gratifying king who's lounging around at his home while other people are out doing the hard work. He's sleeping late into the afternoon and strolling out onto his roof as a lazy king. In other words, the story begins to go wrong before anything bad really happens. Okay, that's important to know. Because, and the reason that's important to know is because if we're honest about our own stories, if you just think about your own stories in your own life, of your own failures, of the places where you've given in to temptation, where you have entered into harmful behavior, where you have been, uh, you've capitulated to weakness when you've sinned, those stories almost always start in the same way, don't they? Things begin to go wrong, not with the act but with the occasion, with some unwise allowing of ourselves to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, with the wrong people, or without accountability, or with impaired judgment, or with no one looking, whatever. The occasion precedes the event. Same with David here. There's an occasion for sin. It's a kind of environment that's more nurturing of the weeds than of the flowers in his soul and in his life. And for David, that environment is simply this leisure time that he allows himself to have when he begins to live as one who has arrived rather than as one who's actively seeking to follow God into whatever the day may hold for him. And so that's a very different David than the one we've come to know and love, right? I mean, our hero David, the one who's been there all through the story, he's always been on the move. 
He's always been vulnerable. He's always been like one inch away from death or deprivation or some sort of trial. He's never been sure how it's all going to work out. Yet we see this guy tirelessly moving forward in faith and fidelity to God, refusing even to take Saul's life when Saul was trying to kill him, and he was right there. That David isn't the David we find in this text. We find this new guy, a guy who's made it, the boss who can do what he wants. He's that sort of king now. And so in verse 2, we move from the occasion to the temptation. One thing leads to another, and it starts small. So there's David. He's on his roof at the palace. It overlooks the city. His house is the highest one. And so he can see all the other roofs of all the other houses nearby. And there he sees Bathsheba, and she's bathing on the roof. She's not lounging by the pool or sunbathing. That's not the scene. She's, she's taking a ritual bath, which is something that Israelite women would do uh, every month as a religious observance after menstruation, which feels like a weird detail to include, but the point is she's not pregnant. Her husband's away at war. Bathsheba's not pregnant. That's going to become a detail that will be relevant very soon. And so David sees her bathing. He admires her beauty, and that occasion creates space for temptation, and David He just keeps going with it. And that's where when you've read the whole story and you see what happens and you understand just how tragic these things are, we recognize in our rereading of the story, our putting ourselves in David's shoes in this moment, just how blind he is to the weightiness of his little actions. Can you just imagine, in no way is David thinking that this gaze is the first step in a chain reaction that is going to lead him into this murderous, scandalous, cover-up crime that will lead to the falling apart of his family and the crumbling of his kingdom and basically the departure of everything he likes about his life. All of that will fall apart because of this gaze and what follows. He has Obviously, no concept of that in this moment. If he had any concept of that, what would he do? He would look away and go back inside. Just like any sane person weighing the cost and the benefit of such actions would run that through the cost-benefit analysis and be like, not a good choice, right? Just on those grounds alone. David is blind to the weightiness of his actions. He doesn't understand what he's doing. And there's something of the insanity of sin that comes through in this moment. And it's something that I'm sure if you and I are being honest with ourselves about life, we can absolutely relate to David in this moment. How often in your life, if you look back on the things that you've done or the things that you've not done, that have had consequences that have persisted into your life or into the lives of other people, if only I had been aware at that moment, I would have lived differently. David is blinded to the weight of his actions, and we are too, so often. And this is where, like, when Jesus comes on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts talking about how the big sins and the little sins are really cut from the same cloth. We need training in that to be able to discern the weightiness and the gravity of what, what life is, right, in relation to God. Where David ta- or Jesus talks about, rather, you know, he talks about anger and murder being not a difference in kind, but a difference in degree of really the same thing right? A harboring in our heart of enmity toward another. Or lust and adultery, not being a difference in kind, 
separate things, but difference in degrees of expression of the same thing, objectifying of another human being or wanting to use others for self-gratification rather than loving others for their own flourishing. These are differences in degree, not in kind. And that's exactly the thing David is blind to in this moment as he's not understanding his gaze to be so powerful and dangerous. So he gazes. He keeps going with it. One thing leads to another. And in verses three and four, we get to the act. David sends. He takes. His actions are swift and thoughtless. They're utterly self-serving. And what we see here is David becoming the king who grasps. All through the story of David so far, what have we seen of him? David is the one who trusts God to provide. When things have been within his grasp, he hasn't grasped for them. David is like the ultimate guy who stays in his lane and trusts God for the results. Until now. Here David takes. He sees, he wants, he takes. He's become a very different kind of king than the king after God's own heart. And so he abuses his power. He uses Bathsheba. He takes her for himself. And Bathsheba has absolutely no say in this, right? I mean, just, ima- just this is the king. You don't say no to the king. This is not a consensual act. This is a violent act. This is David doing whatever he wants to whomever he wants, and Bathsheba is absolutely the victim in this story. This is a Me Too story. And then in verse 5, we get David's uh uh-oh moment, right? Obviously, some time has passed. Bathsheba's there, and she tells David, I'm pregnant. And it's at this moment you begin to sense David getting this feeling of like, I'm beginning to lose control of the situation, right? Here's the king. He takes what he wants. He does what he wants. Uh, and, and he's basically being that kind of self-gratifying king, the bad king. And he's living with this illusion of control. But in this moment of Bathsheba delivering this news, you can sense that this one unintended consequence begins to shatter David's illusion of control. So what does he do? Well, what do people do when confronted with the reality of their illusion, that their illusion isn't actually working? Does David come to his own senses? Is that usually what people do when they're confronted with something like this? No. He does what desperate people typically do when we begin to lose our illusion of control or our illusion of our false self and that begins to crack under the weight of reality, uh, we do not do like what Leonard Cohen, the songwriter, says is you know, the, the crack is how the light gets in. We're, we don't recognize the crack as how the light gets in when we are in self-defensive mode. What do we do? Try to hide the crack. And David, in this moment, he doubles down and the cracking illusion of control, he begins to try to control the cracking. And he takes matters into his own hands and he ends up in this mission to basically hide at all costs. And this is where the story really begins to take the murderous turn, right? David's plan starts off not murderous at all. It starts off with what looks like, from his perspective, obviously kind of like a low-cost, high-benefit solution. Let's call Uriah, her husband, and bring him home. Get him to go home. He'll go with his wife. He'll be excited to find out that she's pregnant sooner than later. He'll assume the baby's his and should just take care of everything. You can just like brush all that under the rug, moving on. This is David's great plan, right? Well, what he wasn't planning on 
was Uriah's upright character. And here enters Uriah, the good soldier of Israel, who's been out with his men. He's been fighting. And soldiers typically would abstain from sexual relations while they're on the battlefield. Sort of like a band of brothers thing. And here Uriah is being part of that. The king has invited him home. He says, go home, be with your wife. And then he even sends like this whole feast with him. This says the gifts of the king followed after him, meaning David sent good food and good wine. He's like, you guys have a great night. You, you deserve this. But Uriah doesn't go. He sleeps on David's porch. He's like, no. My men are all out in the field. Like, how in the world can I go home, enjoy the comforts of home, enjoy the company of my wife when my men are all out there? I'm a loyal soldier. I'm not turning my back on them like that. And so he sleeps on the porch. And, of course, David's got his intelligence guys out there. He knows what's happening. And he, he learns that Uriah has not, in fact, gone home. His plan isn't working. So what does David do? He doubles down again. He invites Uriah back. And he's like, hey, why didn't you go down? Go home. Seriously. And this time David gets him drunk himself. It's like, let's ply this guy with wine and then send him home again. Let's see how this works now. It doesn't work again, right? This is what happens as David doubles down, begins to take matters into his own hands. And, and as those plans don't work, he's not able to manipulate Uriah into complying with his great scheme. What does David do? He orders his good, loyal soldier to be put to death. He basically sends this guy Joab with a command saying, here's what I want you to do. Put Uriah out there in the front lines where like the people die and pull back and let him die. This is David's solution to this plan. Not to like own what he's done. Not to like seek some sort of restoration. Not to apologize. Not to change anything but to murder the husband of the woman that he's taken inappropriately for himself. It becomes this hiding at all costs mission. David becomes a murderer. He enlists, he enlists others in his conspiracy. Bathsheba loses her husband. Basically, everything starts to go really, really horribly. And then in verse 27, we see this comment about God. That God sees and disapproves. David has been operating under the illusion that what he's been doing is hidden from the sight of God, but it's not. God is looking. God sees. Evil happens. God doesn't like it. And one of the great mysteries of our faith is why that is the case. Why does a good God allow suffering to persist? Why doesn't God intervene in ways that we would intervene, we think, if we were in his shoes? with that kind of power. That is one of the great mysteries. That's something that remains unexplained in any satisfying way uh, in every generation. Of course, we know in the story of Christ that where we are taught to look for that answer is not ultimately the problem of evil and the goodness of God, but to the person of Christ himself, where however we answer that question, where we have to land is that the God who allows evil to persist is ultimately not an uncaring, detached God, but a God who would be willing to get beneath the suffering himself in order to end it in a way that is different than what you and I would have imagined possible, preferable, whatever. There's great mystery here. But what we do see in the text is God seeing the evil that David does and he disapproves. And so God sends a truth teller to David. This is an intervention. God sends the prophet Nathan to come and expose the truth, right? 
And so Nathan comes, and this guy's a, he's, he's like a wizard. This guy's a ninja. He's, he's, a, he's a pastor extraordinaire, and he comes in, he's like, okay, it's a dangerous job confronting a king about something that the king has done, right? Uh, imagine walking into that room as the guy that's going to be like, God is mad at you. He just killed the last guy that he was perceiving as not being compliant in his big plan, right? It's like, this is, this is a difficult job. This is a, a risky job. Yet there goes Nathan. God sends him. And so Nathan masterfully leads with this point of contact with David. He's going to tell him a shepherd story. I remember David's like the old shepherd boy, right? He, he grew up... T- Uh, tending the flock and caring for sheep, David knows what it means to love and care for creatures as a nurturer, as a protector. That's his backstory. Nathan speaks to the shepherd heart that's still in there somewhere in the king who's turned into a really bad king very quickly. And so he tells a story about a rich man and a poor man rich man who had all these flocks and the poor man who had just one lamb that was like a daughter to him. And the rich man, not wanting to use up one of his own, decides to take the one beloved lamb of the poor man. And David is outraged. Real moral outrage at real moral evil. And Nathan simply says, you are the man. Your outrage is justified. But it should be aimed at yourself. You are the man. The man you said ought to die. The man you said ought to repay fourfold that which he has taken. You are the man. And David is cut to the heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged yourself, because it's with the judgment that you pronounce that you'll be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. He says, don't be so obsessed with the speck in your neighbor's eye, but be far more interested in the log in your own. This moment of David's outrage is a moment of being fixated on what he perceives to be the speck in another's eye, what he perceives as real evil. He just doesn't see that it is also in himself. And I think one of the lessons here that's embedded in this story for us as we travel with David, and it's just excruciating to hear him get so angry at himself, the version that he's not recognizing, it's, it's, it's excruciating to sit in that moment of him hearing this, and being enraged. And I think we're supposed to look into this story and recognize that you and I do exactly the same thing. In our expressions of outrage, we fixate so strongly in the speck in everyone else's eye that we ignore the log in our own, which is not to say outrage is not justified. It's just simply to acknowledge that it's very dangerous, especially when it blinds us to the log in our own if our fixation on the problems out there make it to where we're unable to see that the problem is in here, our outrage is probably tinged with more than just a little hypocrisy, and we're probably more than just a little blind. Nathan's sermon to David, you are the man. It cuts home because it reminds us 
that it's always about you. You live in relation to God. I live in relation to God. Of course, we all do. And of course, there are real problems out there. And of course, we have to know, say them for what they are, name them for what they are, and seek to fight against injustice in this world. Of course, we join in the cause of seeking all that. But how do we do it? Do we do it as those who can see that we ourselves are part of the problem? Or do we do it as those who are better than the other guy? Better than those people? Better than the problem? Better than the target of my rage? Can you see yourself as one who might deserve some unfriending and unfollowing sometimes? David's awakened in verse 7. We see him respond to this, you are the man moment. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And there's another place in scripture in Psalm 51 where we get this incredible prayer of, of lament and confession and repentance where David, in this moment, expresses to God his own sinfulness. He owns it. He sees it. He laments it. He weeps over the damage that he's done. And he asks to be restored. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right and steadfast spirit within me. That's the prayer. That's the plea of someone who recognizes that they themselves are part of the problem. Someone who recognizes, I am the man. I am the woman. And so stories like this of David are stories that begin to set us free. Because it's moments like this where we begin to see that even David, in his moment of incredible abuse of power, who is absolutely, absolutely, warranting the death penalty for what he's done under Israelite law, even this man, even this man can be forgiven, restored, and transformed. David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace, Peterson says, Eugene Peterson, in his comment on this text. Of course, David's not the only one we're concerned about. What about Bathsheba? What about the baby? What about everybody else? What about Uriah? Where's their justice, right? Where's their transformation? Where's their advocate? There's more damage. There's more mercy as the story progresses, as we see um, real chaos and real consequences fall upon David, fall upon everyone involved in the story. His, his sin isn't undone as God forgives him. The consequences remain. But David is forgiven, and God says, or Nathan says to, the, to David that you won't die. Doesn't exempt David from those consequences of his actions, but it does show that God is actually going to keep this promise that he's made back in 2 Samuel 7, where he said to David, you're the king I'm going to build my dynasty through. Now you've disqualified yourself through this act to be like the king, but I will keep my promise, and your household will still be the dynasty of the kingdom of God. And so what we're introduced to in this moment is this ultimate hope in the midst of this ongoing suffering that unfolds because of what David has done. David's going to live, but his child will die. And the most troubling thing for me in this whole story, and there are plenty of troubling things for me, but the hardest thing for me in this whole story is the death of the child. Did you feel that when we read it? Did you feel, was the, is that the part that pushed, pushed on you maybe more than anything else? For me, that was the part where it's like the Lord struck the child and the child became ill. And you keep reading the story and the, the child dies. And you're like, what, 
does this say about God? What kind of God is this in this story? What are we to make of this? And I think the most helpful thing for me in reflecting on this has just been to think about how this story fits in a larger story of the history of God's people that all is flowing out of the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. That's a big, fat sentence, I know. But, but here's the thing. In Deuteronomy, there's a vision cast for the people, right? And it's choose life, not death. Choose life, not death. Seek the Lord. It's, it's, it's this invitation to go into the land and to choose the way of God, which is the way of the law, Torah. And the whole invitation slash command that God gives his people is choose life, not death. Because when you choose death, it is to live under curse. When you choose life, it is to live under blessing. And what we see in this pivotal moment in David's character is this moment where he transitions by virtue of his sin from one who is living under blessing to one who is living under curse because he's chosen death, not life. He becomes the poster boy of how it's not to be done in this moment of failure as Israel's king. And this Torah command that God is faithful to keep is one that visits death and curse upon the families and generations of those who betray the Lord. It's horrific to read. But at the same time, what God is saying is that he's not backing off of his original promise. That that kind of vision is not all that there is. There's a deeper promise. Sort of like in the Chronicles of Narnia, the deeper magic that runs beneath it all, right? God is up to something bigger and better and more beautiful. And so this this catastrophic event, as awful as it is, isn't going to deter God from carrying to completion the movement forward of his kingdom. And ultimately, when we begin to ask, what does this text show us about what kind of God this is? We have to recognize that the Bible isn't just like a mosaic of portraits, of still shots of God, that we put together and just zoom in on this or that and make our own portrait of who God is. The Bible is an unfolding story, a narrative portrait of God. And everything that happens before Jesus is preparing us to meet Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he says, if you want to know what God is like, you got to know what I'm like. If you've seen me, you see the Father. Everything prepares us for him. We don't look to this text as our primary picture of what is God like. We look to Jesus as our primary picture of what is God like. And you look to this story as part of the deep current of what God is doing in the world as his people begin to grasp more and more of a vision of who this God is and what this God is like until finally he comes in person in our world to rescue us, to die beneath the weight of our sinfulness, and to rise above it and to take us with him into a world that is restored. Justice for Bathsheba doesn't come as swiftly as we would want it. For her, for any victim of any crime, for ourselves or anyone we know and love, she lives with the remainder, the persistence of suffering and trauma. She was a victim. Her justice comes the way justice comes for all. In the deep, unfolding story of the coming kingdom of God. Bathsheba bears another son. He'll be King Solomon. And farther down that genealogy will come King Jesus. 
And Bathsheba in the Gospel of Matthew is written right into that genealogy. She's one of the blessed mothers of our Savior. One who was instrumental in moving the kingdom forward. We want full restoration now, but that's not the hope that fits a resurrection promise. The reality is we live in a world where evil persists. We live in a world where there is real injustice. We live in a world where bad things happen beyond our control and where we will suffer traumas that will not be made fully right today or tomorrow. But the promise that we get in Christ and in the gospel, the story that we get that unfolds from David to Jesus is one of a God who is working the deeper magic and making all things new and including us in it that we may live forever with him in the earth. And in Eugene Peterson's book on this, he draws a parallel between Nathan telling David, you are the man, and Pontius Pilate looking at Jesus and the crowd and saying, behold the man, the Lamb of God, who was slain. Peterson says this, that Nathan's sentence brings David and therefore us to the brink of God. David realizes who he is not in himself, but before God. It's God with whom he has to do. Pilate's sentence, in contrast, brings Jesus to the brink of who we are, revealing that it's me, you, with whom God has to do. The place of sin becomes not the place of accusation or condemnation, but the place of salvation and the place of hope. Will you behold the man? Will you look to Jesus, the greater David who is to come, the king who actually shouldered that kingdom of justice and is bringing it to fullness? And will you know in him the freedom of what it is not to be one of the good ones who's able by these outrage missiles to just like take down all the people that you see as the bad ones. But to simply be loved, to be restored, to be forgiven, the way into that freedom is to begin to see how you are the man, you are the woman, and the love of God for you in Christ meets you exactly there and liberates you to discover that place as the place of your salvation. May God work his grace in us to make us bearers of his love and justice in the world as he has loved us in Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for the great mystery that you've given us in your salvation in Christ. We, we thank you that you meet us in the midst of the turmoil and the strife and the injustice and the horror of life in a world where evil really is there. And we pray that you would help us to see it not only out there but in ourselves that we may turn from self-gratifying and self-promoting ways of living in the earth and instead to take upon life with you where we receive as a gift the life you give us rather than grasping and taking what we want. Would you free us from playing that game? Would you heal us in the places where we've suffered at the hands of others? And would you remake us all together into a new whole people? abiding with you forever in peace, justice, and love through Christ our Lord. Amen.